Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Using sunlight and starlight as the inspiration for and source of his art, Charles Ross creates large-scale prisms to project the solar spectrum into architectural spaces, focuses sunlight into powerful beams to create solar burn works, and draws the quantum behavior of light with dynamite. He also works with a variety of other media, including photography and video. Ross enables his viewers to experience different facets of the relationship between light and space by staging his works in diverse settings, from one-room installations like his Hanging Islands in the collection of the National Gallery of Art, to his ongoing project, Star Axis, a monumental work of land art in the New Mexico desert. In this conversation, held on February 24, 2019, in conjunction with the special installation, Spaces, works from the collection 1966 to 1976, Ross discusses his career with gallery curator James Meyer. I am James Meyer and welcome to the National Gallery for our event with Charles Ross, uh, who has come to us uh, from New Mexico, from his work Star Axis, which we're going to get to know uh, this afternoon. Charles is an artist I've gotten to know in the course of uh, working on the Dwan collection, The Gift of Virginia Dwan, to the National Gallery, uh, which led to a very remarkable exhibition a few years ago that I think, I hope many of you saw, Los Angeles to New York, Dwan Gallery 1959 to 1971, when Ms. Dwan generously promised and donated outright a collection of 250 objects to the National Gallery, many called from the history of her remarkable gallery, which operated in LA and New York for just 11 years, but 11 remarkable years. And one of the central figures in the history of the Duan Gallery is Charles Ross, to whom she gave four exhibitions, uh, which was quite a lot for Virginia to do, to give to any artist. And, uh, she would then, of course, become a patron of uh, Star Axis, his great earthwork uh, in, in uh, New Mexico, which we're going to look at. So in the Dwan show, at the very end of the narrative, which led from abstract expressionism through pop art, minimalism and conceptualism, you ended in the gallery downstairs in this room devoted to land art. Virginia Dwan organized the earthwork show of 1968. Uh, which featured several of the, the artists who became well-known as land artists. And in this gallery, you saw this double prism work in Virginia Dwan's collection. It's an early work by Charles Ross. And we pointed that double prism toward the large mural of Star Axis, Charles's work in New Mexico. Virginia was a patron, or has been a patron, of four major earthworks, all of them marked in the exhibition by these great murals. The lightning field of Walter de Maria, the double negative of Michael Heiser, the spiral jetty of Robert Smithson, seen at the end of the hall, and Star Axis, a work which is still being completed and which Charles has worked on since 1971. So I also had the opportunity at this time to visit Charles and Joe O'Brien uh, at Star Axis with Ms. Duan in New Mexico. Extraordinary 
thing to see, as you'll get to know it. And also, we were able to acquire this other work from Ms. Duan. It's hanging upstairs in the spaces installation on the mezzanine. It's called The Hanging Islands, which Charles created in the 1960s, which had decayed over the years, and which Charles refabricated for us, and which we installed upstairs. And if you haven't seen it, it's magnificent as well, and it's only up for another 10 to 12 days. So please go see it if you haven't upstairs. So this introduced or reintroduced Charles's work to the gallery, to all of us. And it seemed like the absolute right moment to bring Charles to come and talk to us about his career. And so we're going to go through Charles's career and the, the amount of time we have, we'll look at different things and to get to know how you uh, developed. And pretty soon I'm gonna stop talking <laughs> and we're gonna hear from you because there's so much to learn, so much I have to learn about your work. And one of the, well, before we get to the dance, it would, I think, be useful to know about your college education, your interest in, in mathematics and so on, um, and then how then you become involved <coughs> in choreography, dance, prop making, and so on. Could you just tell us about that? Uh, well, I started out in physics at Penn State, and then I transferred to the University of California at Berkeley in the heyday of the 60s. And uh, actually, 1958, I arrived in Berkeley, so I got to see it all. And I, was, I switched from physics to mathematics because physics was a little too much hands-on. I wanted to be a little more abstract, went into mathematics, and <clears throat> at the end of my four years, first four undergrad, four years there, they demanded that I take a, make up a two-unit course in liberal arts of some kind. And I had no interest in liberal arts whatsoever. I just wanted to focus on math. So finally, my advisor said, why don't you take a sculpture course? You can dabble around in the clay. We only care you get a passing grade. Nobody fails sculpture, so you won't even have to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to show up. Two months later, they called me in and said, what happened to your grades, which had gone from quite high to very low in mathematics. And I said, sculpture. <laughs> and they said, what do you want to do about it? And I said, transfer me into the graduate school in, in art at Berkeley and get me out of this freshman to PhD program, which is what I was in, in, in uh, number theory and mathematics. There, there were no inter intermediate degrees. So they made up a bachelor's degree for me to get me out and collaborated with the uh, art department and I went right into sculpture. And I really went into sculpture. A friend of mine was the teaching assistant at Berkeley, so he had the keys. And whenever there was a weekend or a vacation period, we just put cots in the sculpture room and worked 24 hours a day nonstop. What was it about sculpture? I have no idea, but I was transformed. It, was, it became a, a, an overwhelming passion. Was it about the tactility of the object? It or? was actually it was the, the fact that it was hands-on and the fact that it was also very abstract. So my training in mathematics became useful to me in terms of abstract thinking. And I was very interested in geometry and also cha the chance operations of John Cage. So my, my earliest stuff at Berkeley was welded steel sculpture and we used John Cage 
techniques. We would go gather, my friend Harry Lippi and I would go gather stuff in the Berkeley Bay, mud flats, wreck ships and things, load up a truck, back it up into the sculpture department and just throw everything out on the floor and weld it in place the way it landed. <laughs> and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> How do we intersect with Anna Halperin? I know she was in the Bay Area. I know that Robert Morris and Yvonne Rayner, and I don't know if Simone Forty was part of it, but that there was a migration of very significant artists with her yes. and her choreography techniques from the Bay Area to New York in the early 60s. Were mm -hmm. you, how do you fit into that? I uh, knew about her, I think, through John Cage, who she knew. I think she might have given a party for John Cage or something like that when he was in San Francisco. Anyway, I met her and I saw one of her early performances, which actually was the precursor to Parades and Changes. And uh, I said to her, I love the improv dance portion of your work, but you could do better with the staging. I remember saying that. And she said, well, why don't you come over and do it for us? And uh, I was heading to New York on a scholarship uh, to spend a year in New York just working. So I said, I will when I come back. And then I started thinking about this, and I'd spent some time with Anne by that time and got to New York and uh, hooked up with Judson Dance Theater and did a collaboration with at Judson. And then when I went back to San Francisco, I started working with Anna. So what did you do? You built, built things that were props? I built, uh, well, in this performance on the, on the uh, left-hand side, the, that's Judson Dance and the chair sculpture. I took all the chairs in the church and during a performance, of the dancers, I started hooking them all together. So we made this gigantic mound of chairs. And then the trapezoid welded steel sculpture there, the frame, uh, was something I provided to them. And they used that to roll around. The idea was to be task-oriented and that all the movement would come out of, out of working tasks, actually. Yes, and it got rid of uh, expression and, yeah. and all these sorts of conventions of modern dance. Did you do any dancing in these events? I was on stage, but I did not at Judson, except that I was there to, to help them with the... That trapezoid weighed about 400 pounds, so to help the dance. They rolled it around on the, on the floor of the church. On the right hand, the one with Anna Hopper, and that's me in the hat and the white suit. I did perform on stage with Anna, and we did a tour. It was one of the early tours to go behind the Iron Curtain. We went to Helsinki, uh, Stockholm, and Warsaw. And Warsaw was really behind the Iron Curtain. It was a stunning transformation to get off the plane in West Germany, get on a little puddle jumper and go to East Germany so you could get to Warsaw. And the difference was between a modern airport and an airport that, where they marched you with armed guards between rows of concertina wire to get from one plane to the other. So it was, it was amazing wake-up call for what, you know, what that represented. But when, and then we performed at Warsaw. And Warsaw was very interesting because we had the Minister of Culture 
assigned to us as our guide in Warsaw. Mm. And every morning when we went to uh, rehearse, we started rehearsals, he would stand up on the stage and give a diatribe against decadent Western art. <laughs> Very forceful. Mm. And then he would send his assistant out to get coffee for everybody, and as soon as the door closed, he'd say, KGB, now let's, let me, tell me what's happening in the West. <laughs> and we'd have a great conversation, and he would hear that door open, and he would switch in mid-sentence to a diatribe against decadent Western art. And I remember Anna saying, would you tour with us? Could you do that on stage? I mean, it's just, it was so astonishing, the performance. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. But I was on stage because we had uh, three-story high scaffolds that were moving past each other and things like that, and dancers were stepping from one to the other. And so I was miked, and, and I was moving the main scaffold, and some other people were moving the others, and I was making sure nobody fell the three stories off by not connecting as these things passed. So, so I was on stage for the whole performance in that. But it seems in the work on the right that mm -hmm. you're thinking about geometric form mm -hmm. as something to, for a body to engage, yeah. to not only see, but to move through and... Right. Because the props of Judson dance could vary according to who's, who's the artist who's making mm -hmm. the props. I think of Morris working with ropes and slant boards. Right. But your props are something to move through, something to... to move through, but also we had uh, millions of feet of, uh, of uh, plastic sheeting, you know, the kind you wrap stuff with. And uh, we would throw those rolls off the top of the, uh, of the scaffolds, and they would fill the whole stage with kind of crumpled plastic. And the, one of the parts of this performance was the dancers would be behind with scissors, and they would cut their way through <laughs> the plastic until they came out in the front. And the lighting, uh, the lighting guy would shine all these colored lights through them. So they would, as they cut through the plastic, the lighting would change in. And it, it was all a lot of improv, still uh, interacting with materials, you know, and seeing what the throwing materials in front of the dancers and seeing what they would do with them mm. when they confronted the materials. Mm. That was my job in the performance. And one sees that you did organize a happening at a certain point. Yeah, I did. And then there's a transition to sculpture. You, you go back to what we might call sculpture for yeah. display for a gallery. Can you tell us about that transition from a Halprin-involved, task-based activity where you're mm -hmm. making things to be engaged bodily and moved and climbed on to something we move around and look at mm -hmm. and look through? And how do we move to your acrylite material? Right. Well, at the time uh, I was working with Anna, I was also, I started out doing welded steel sculpture, and then I moved into making lattice sculptures that were kind of transparent. So that was all happening at the same time that I was working with the happenings. And um, in 1965, uh, at Thanksgiving, I dreamed engineering drawings for how to build a large prism. My really large prisms were, these were all liquid-filled prisms because it was impossible to make a solid optical body that big. I was so engaged in the other work I was doing, I didn't pay any attention to this dream, but at the end of the day, I still had drawings 
that I could access, that kind of a gauze in front of my vision. And I thought, okay, any dream that lasts all day probably is worth making note of. So I sat down and sketched it out and realized these were engineering drawings. And the next, well, after Thanksgiving was over that Monday, I went down to the acrylic store and bought all the materials and built the first prism. So literally these forms and even the acrylite hmm. came out of a dream. Came out of a dream, yeah. And the first prism, since these were gonna be liquid filled, the first prism, I went to a structural engineer to figure out how thick the plexiglass should be. And the first one was about this wide and it was, I think, eight feet high. And he said, quarter inch acrylic. And I kept saying, I don't think so. But he assured me that was fine. So I built the first one and it got filled up about six feet with water. And I started hearing these awful noises. And then it blew up and threw me 30 feet across fabrication tables in my studio, all the way against the wall at the other side. And Michael Heiser was my neighbor in this loft building in San Francisco, and we had big gaps in the floor. And the water went through one gap, and Michael was painting. <laughs> and he had stepped back from his painting, and this sheet of water fell between him and the painting and then disappeared through the, the next floorboard. And he kept running upstairs, and, and he said to me, did I take acid or something? I just had, I just had the most incredible experience. <laughs> and I showed him what had happened. And that was my introduction to, uh, to liquid engineering, to hydrostatics. I got better information, and, we, and then I started building them. Well, so many artists of your generation are going into workshops in the mid-60s using synthetic materials, uh, fabricated materials. I think of Judd's use of metals and plexiglass and Eva Hess going into fiberglass right. and latex. And, but you're working... My, my knowledge is that it's called acrylite, or it was called, it is was that acrylite, correct? It was acrylite, yeah. And so what is it? It's a co I think I read it was a compound that DuPont was making, and I mean, how did, what Roman is it? Roman Haas. What is it? Roman, uh, it's just a clear acrylic plastic, but it was cast in sheets between glass, so it was optically perfectly clear, and so I could make these shapes, and when, I, when we used an optical fluid in them, they were as if they were transparent glass but on a scale that was impossible to get. I, uh, somewhere in the late 60s, I called up Corning Glass and asked him what it would cost to build. I was making prism columns and that were about 14 inches on a side and eight, nine feet high, eight feet high. And Corning called me back about a month later and said, we have good news and bad news. And I said, okay, what's the bad news? No, no, what's the good news, mm. right? And they said, the good news is these will cost $2 million a piece to fabricate, and you have to order three for us to do it. And I said, my God, what's the bad news? <laughs> and they said, it'll take us 20 years to take them out of the mold. <laughs> so I knew we weren't going to go to glass. And so I but stayed how, with how the ex How expensive were these plastics? I to, to build those things at the time. How did a young artist, was Ms. Dwan supporting some of this Yeah, work Virginia or? was supporting them. I was building, this was at Delexi Gallery, this, uh, mm -hmm. this picture, but, um, in, which was in San Francisco. Right. But uh, they were not costing a huge amount. That's my studio in, uh, on uh, Eldridge Street, which was on a block where the mafia used to drop bodies. 
So you would hear a limo screech to a halt and doors would open and you'd hear a thud and all the shades across the street would close. No one ever saw anything. <laughs> and then the police would come and, you know. But anyway, um, that was happening like outside. It, this was happening inside. Sounds like an inspiring place to work. <laughs> <laughs> I was teaching at the time, and, and these, were, these were possible to make. And when I went with Dwan, I started building bigger things with much thicker acrylic. But they were not outrageously expensive. No, they were not outrageously expensive. They were something you could do. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think back then, prism column this big and eight feet high cost about $3,000 to fabricate. I was doing all the fabrication myself, and I became so good at fabricating that NASA used to try to talk me into fabricating parts in the early space program, but I, I was not interested in becoming a fabricator. And it's almost impossible to find anybody who can fabricate the way we did. Wait, and you're saying that you would buy the plastic sheet. sheets yeah. and you would put them together? Yeah, we would cut it. And how, do you, how do you put those things together? There, there was a cement that is castable acrylic, but you can only cast tiny bits because it, it fills with air bubbles. And uh, <clears throat> I had a whole setup for casting these. The stuff is like honey, and it's got a... 20-minute pot life, so it has to be used within 20 minutes. It's a two-part system. You mix it together. It had to be have the air uh, and the fumes taken out of it in a vacuum chamber. That took 15 minutes, and when it came out of the vacuum chamber, you had five minutes to use it. And if you made a mistake, you threw the material. The materials couldn't be reused. You had to throw everything out and start with fresh materials. So we got quite good at it. I had a team of people. I did the gluing, and I had somebody next to me counting off a clock to tell me how many seconds I had left, and actually two other people going down the line and pulling bubbles out with a needle. So that was, and the joints were perfect. I mean, you how did you get the water inside? Did you pour it all in and then pump put it in the, the cap on top, and then in pump, no, pump it in, and it has a little plug at the top. It's and how how again were there no bubbles left that would annoy a viewer. How did you get it absolutely full? Oh, you mean the liquid? If we, yes. uh, there were expansion chambers built into the prism. So the air came up and then we rocked it back and forth and all the air went into an, a chamber. The issue with the liquid filled ones is that acrylic and the liquid expand and contract at different rates. And so if you sealed it, they would blow up. So you got very good at doing like, it. Yeah, we yeah. got very good at gauging the yeah. uh, air chamber and all that. And so the Hanging Islands, which, which is of course upstairs, yeah. exhibited at Finch College. For those of you who may not know, so this was a, a college on the Upper East Side of New York, which during the 60s and 70s had a very avant-garde exhibition program, contemporary art. Um, the curator was a person called Elaine Varian. Yes. And she was brilliant and she showed Donald Judd and Dan Graham and so many wonderful artists very early in their careers, very connected. Yes. So she includes the Hanging Islands in, in a show, Schemata, I think it was called? Yeah. In, yeah. in 1967. Right. So it's a serial piece. There are six sets of six units. Right. And I believe the longest <coughs> ones are six feet. Six feet. Yeah. yeah, and then three feet down to three and a half inches. We keep having. Yeah, the, and so, yeah. so you start to use a serial system 
yes. to generate a, a, a piece, a set of six? Well, I had done a lot of serial pieces, the, the collapsing cube, too, which was in a previous picture. That was already a serial? Uh, yeah, yeah. On that table, you see the early collapsing cube pieces. That was starting with a cube and just pushing it over from a corner, so it fell down to a line, squeezing everything. So your interest in mathematics is informing the form. Yes, yes. Well, an, ab an abiding interest in geometry, which never stopped. So one of, one of the issues that arises in the work, with the prismatic works, here's the work remade upstairs. Mm -hmm. And by the way, before I ask you the next question, we refabricated this, or you refabricated it for us, and the units are solid, aren't they? They're what, solid What now. happened to the technology of, of plastics in, yeah. in this 40-something years since the first version, that you didn't have to put water or mineral oil inside? No, uh, these probably could have been done early on solid, uh, but they can't get much bigger than this. I mean, the piece at Mona, the, the latest commission of mine, were prisms this big, it's the maximum you can do in solid acrylic and have a stay optically clear. The real issue is trying to keep cast pieces clear. So it's not weight, it's not mass, it's about perception? Wavy lines in the casting. Yeah. And so the question I want to, to raise is the question of light. I've mm. named this session about light. Your whole career has been a research into light, the perception of light, yeah. the effects of light, the movements of, of light and you're initially doing it in, in installation inside with artificial illumination mm -hmm. with these prisms. Could you possibly say well, how you became so fixated on, on light? Well, the, the sequence was the early prisms were about gathering images in the room. You kind of, each face of a prism gives you a different view of the room. So with the cubes, for instance, you'd get all kinds of different views of the room in in a, you know, in one solid body. So it was kind of a three-dimensional cubism, collecting all these views of the room and putting them into one object. And then I put some in a window to see what would happen, and they started projecting spectrum. So I immediately got involved in how the prisms project spectrum. Then it just kept moving through these different dimensions of light uh, after the prisms in, I think it was around 1969, I said to myself, okay, I've been working with light, projecting light. What's the opposite of that? So being a little slow, a few days later, I thought, oh, okay, you condense light. So use a lens. And then I started making the solar burns. Okay, we'll get yeah. to the solar burns okay. in a minute. But I mean, if the whole thing evolves, one, you know, takes me into the different kind of layers that are contained in the envelope of light different forms and structures that light actually carries. And I was looking for bringing them out and making them visible. They also, of course, really challenge our perception of a gallery, of a space. Mm -hmm. uh, these double units, in a way, splitting points of view up. This work with the coffin with the nude, where is she lying down? Yeah. Um, On the floor, back toward the doorway. Yeah. <laughs> The one at the Dwan Gallery with Nancy Holt, I think, is pictured. She's kind of split in half. So you're thinking about the other, the view, well, yourself in a gallery, the viewers across the way, uh, the whole environment. Well, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still thinking about fracturing, using the prisms to collect 
fractured images, you know, and gather different kinds of perspectives in, into one object. Like uh, on the, the double wedge on the, uh, on the right, John Weber, you're looking down at John Weber and up at John Weber through the prism. I just would point out, um, one of the things that you discover when you're actually installing works as a curator is, is each work produces its own set of complications. And Charles's uh, Hanging Islands did produce a set of complications. <laughs> um, when I asked Charles, how do we install this work? You were very passive about it. You said um, you trusted us to, to oh, do yeah. a good job, and which not all artists would do. Uh, you mm -hmm. thought we could pull it off, and uh, you said you said something about maybe one set should go up to your solar plexus, perhaps. Yeah, it should be hanging at at mid mid height. But uh, that's a very flexible piece. You can kind of install that any way you like, as long as you keep the six the sets of six together. But each time it's put up, and it, it yeah. changes. Yes, and, oh, and yeah. Our installation was different, I think. Yes. From at Finch yeah. College, and the prisms change. You put the same prism in different room. It's a different piece. And it all changed depending on how back. we lit it too. Yes, absolutely. Adjusting the lights above and how many shadows do you put below? So it's absolutely contingent with the room and and with the installation. It's work yeah. that can always be different. I love that about it. These are these I just point out are, are the staff, uh, the gallery of all our installers who, who and, and associates who put up the piece with Ms. Dwan sitting down, Charles in the back. And it was very gratifying. We all met in the, in the gallery with you and it was very powerful, I think, for all of us to meet with you, to see the creator of the work in the room with the work that we had gone to such lengths to install. It was great to meet the people who had enough patience to actually hang them all level. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, the installation is pretty difficult. And, and interestingly enough, the big ones are easy. It's the little ones that are really hard to hang. Apparently, when we hung them the, with, with the filament, it, they kept sagging and it just had to keep clipping and, and readjusting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You've done that a lot in your life, I'm sure. You know, one thing about the prisms is that I, I'm very interested in the geometry and how the geometry captures light and also captures views of the room. But I'm not interested at all in controlling the views. So, you know, the prism comes with a certain internal structure. You put it in a different room, it, it does something different. Every time you move it to a new place, it's, it's a new piece, essentially. But you've told me that some certain forms suit the prism, so that triangular forms, yeah. uh, like the ones in uh, the Hanging Islands. Um, well, they're good for light, what they do with light. More, they create more prismatic effects. More prismatic effect, right. Equilateral prism is, is the best for, for spectrum effects. So there's a real implications. Which geometric forms are chosen will produce different effects. Mm -hmm. So now let's move into this. You're starting to make these works you call solar burns. I think by the early 70s or? No, the even? first one was done, I think, in 69. I just mm. looked it up recently. Mm. And it was just a lens propped up on two sticks over a stump in the ground in mm. a friend of mine's place up near Woodstock. And as the sun moved across the sky, it burned an arc through the stump. So they're, then, de they're deceiving. You think looking at this that you're looking at a charcoal drawing 
but actually it's created by the sun. And it, it's, is this a wooden support or a different? Yeah, this is uh, about four inches thick of, uh, it's particle board that's then painted. And this was, this actually is half a year. This is from solstice to solstice, that burn. So it was, that was out under the lens for six months. And these were done, the ones on the left were done on my roof in New York. So, so tell us more about them. So they're about, you, you take a magnification apparatus that you've, mm -hmm. you've fabricated. A you've... Fresnel lens. No, I just, you just buy them off the shelf. It's a flat lens, Fresnel lens. Everybody knows them, I think, from the 60s and 70s. You, those things you put in your back window of your, of your van. The round, <laughs> those little round Fresnel lens, it's the same kind of lens. But you built that structure to hold I built the, the structure, and this is a big lens. That's uh, two by four feet, I think, So, So, so there, it's light, but now we're outdoors. It's natural light. It's the mm -hmm. sun. Yeah. And it's becoming about cosmological uh, and astronomical questions, right? Well, both were. When, when I started with the... Uh, the spectrum projecting prisms, they got me involved in solar astronomy. And all kinds of things, surprises were happening. What happens is the, uh, it's with a small prism it works, of course, but with a big prism that's projecting a spectrum that's half the size of your body on a wall, they're changing and they change at twice the rate of speed that a shadow changes on the ground. And all kinds of surprising things happen because of the speeded up movement of the sun across the sky that they're, they're reflecting. And <clears throat> so I got very involved in solar astronomy, trying to track what was happening and how they changed with the seasons and things, because the altitude of the sun uh, changes how they work in the room. You actually need two prisms if you want to cover the motion of the sun for a year. Uh, one prism won't capture the entire span of the 47 degrees that the sun moves in the space from longest day of the year to shortest day of the year. So you need two prisms to do that. I got all involved in the geometry of that. And then, like I said, I was thinking, okay, I want to do the opposite. So instead of dispersing sunlight to create the spectrum, I focused it to create a burn. And then I did these for every day of the year First show was in 1972 at John Weber Gallery. And the first ones were five feet by about a foot wide. And 366 of them, it was leap year. And I remember the opening, Andy Warhol brought Mick Jagger to the opening and they all ran around looking for their birthdays. <laughs> I had to pull Burns out so they could see the date on the back of them. <laughs> it was great fun. The one on the right is a new version of the solar burn work, and I've just did these twice a month. These are the human-sized solar burns, and that burn is six feet, so. I, th I think I've got some human-sized. Yeah, there you go. So they're complicated things, and very simple and very complicated, because it's, it's also about energy, the energy of the sun, yeah. as a kind of force uh, that's acting upon another material and yeah. causing it to burn. They're kind of totems. They're, they're like personages when they're hung on the wall. I mean, that's how you confront them in, in human scale. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of stories about this. The, the entire year of solar burns, they curve differently. They curve this way in the summer, and they curve this way in the winter. 
and they're straight spring and fall. So that was curious. So we wanted to know what shape that actually was making. So a sister of mine and I, we printed all the whole year of solar burns, all 366, in little photos, and we started assembling them on a, using a spring steel wire to keep the curve continuous. And it took a ridiculous amount of time because we thought they were going to be an S-shaped curve, like the ecliptic, if you know star maps. The sun moves through a star, the star field in an S-shaped curve on a, on a flat map. Uh, but they moved in a spiral, and it took two months to do the first spiral bending this wire, you know, until you finally got everything to fit the curve. And we thought, okay, we've got that done. We'll flip it over and do the second half of the year. And we started to try to fit the second half of the year, and it was a different spiral. And that got me involved in, I went to the Hayden Planetarium. The director of the Hayden Planetarium was an expert in solar motion. I showed him this spiral, and he said, I have no idea what that is, but I remember seeing something about that somewhere once. And if I can think of it, I'll let you know. So he called me two weeks later and he said, I think the Naval Observatory in Washington has equations for this. And so I called them up and they said, oh, send us a photograph. So I sent the Naval Observatory a photo and they said, when we were calibrating the Longwood uh, Garden sundial, we wanted to know how accurate a sundial was. Turns out you can make a sundial within a few seconds. Keeps a few seconds of time. While we were working on the mathematics of that, the computer spit out this weird spiral. And we just threw the drawings in the drawer, and you just sent us a photograph of the equations. <laughs> Let's get together. And, so, and then the Naval Observatory was instrumental in, in providing these stair dates for star axis, the first stair dates. May, so, I ask, may I ask you, not knowing... So one thing leads to another, yes. is my point. Yeah. <laughs> may, I, may I ask you, um, would, would, the, would the arrangement, would the curve, would the result, mm -hmm. does it vary according to where you are doing it on the planet, the latitude and longitude? Do, do you, does the, the thickness of the magnifying yeah. glass, do you use different ones to produce different effects? To what extent? Do you, as the author, as the artist, direct the sun's, uh, uh, the result of the sun, or is it completely? That's actually unknown at this point. However, what is known is the change in the spiral was the lens picking up the day-to-day -day change, change of the speed of the Earth in its orbit, which is microscopic, and everyone was stunned that this primitive system, which is just a simple lens held over a board would pick up something as fine as the day-to-day -day change of the Earth in its orbit. But that was what was causing the, the winter spiral spiral down really fast, because the Earth's moving faster in the winter around the sun than it is in the summer in this hemisphere. And in the summertime, it was a lazy spiral. It was more circular. Interesting. And we identified that help of the Naval Observatory. They were able to nail that. There's actually a book about that long ago, published in 75 or so. But, uh, and, but if you move it, what's known is the two spirals would be different from winter to summer. But it's not clear what happens at the equator. 
when they transition from, you know, the winter spiral and the summer spiral flip. And that's not clear, but it's clear that they would have to be different because they're capturing the speed of the Earth, and that's that's true everywhere, no matter what latitude you're in. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. And now we're going to look at just three installations. There are others that Charles, you've done public works of public uh, architecture. Yeah. Uh, this I think there's 23 actually. Okay. <laughs> Well, so we just have three, and this is the light sanctuary that Ms. Dwan, Virginia Dwan, commissioned. The architecture uh, is by Laban Wingert, and you were commissioned to do your prismatic yes. intervention. And, it's and I did the, in, the space. I didn't do the architecture, but I did the empty space that was needed for the prisms. Did you choose the material for the walls? No, 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 okay. that was all Laban. And this isn't far from Star Axis, by the way, um, in New Mexico. A federal courthouse in, in Tampa. And then more recently at Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art uh, in Tasmania. Correct. It looks yeah. like a fabulous uh, installation. So here you're really working in a public arena, mm-hmm. especially with time, as, as, as your work has become better known. More and more public commissions happened. Do you enjoy that process of... of I do. T- tell us a little about it. And especially when it shifts to museum installations like Mona, that's a permanent... It's a 23-foot cube, Corten steel cube, with walls that are only this thick, and inside are porcelain walls to capture the spectrum. Those, the white walls, the spectrum's falling on, on the writer are actually porcelain. That was, a, well, that was an escalation of surface for me. <laughs> What's interesting, just looking at, at, at this, or the Duan Lank Sanctuary, or, or the t- courthouse, is that you're, the prisms are sort of, it's becoming uh, a kind of artistic arrangement of prisms, more of a kind of cubist or abstract expressionist, mm-hmm. Hans Hoffman kind of arranging of what happens is... Or is it more purely yeah. to create the maximum amount of effects? Uh, what happens is that when I do these, I, I make a model for them, and I work with little model prisms. And we just start with one prism and put it all over the place, cut holes in the model, stick it in different places and see what it does. And finally, I find an optimum place for that prism, and then I introduce the second one. And we we build a piece that kind of orchestrates how the light will move through the space for that space at that location. And so each one is completely unique because each one's kind of discovered on site through the model. And I have a machine in New York which will duplicate the motion of the sun across the model for any place on the planet for any minute of the day for every day of the year. So we can run a model through and see what the entire effect is going to be and how it's going to evolve from the summer to the winter. And uh, it's, it's great fun to do. And I never really know what's happening. I mean, these are, these are all you know, found in place, so it's a matter of discovering. But that's so interesting. The way you're arranging these things, as you've explained, is to capture effects of light. It's not, yes. I'm going to create a design no, that no. looks pretty, are... you know, this, this should go here and this should go there. It's not composition. No, no the design evolves out of what, what the space seems to need for the most interesting migration of spectrum through it, and not just through one day, but throughout the year. Really? They change dramatically from summer to winter. 
Very interesting. So now we arrive at Star Axis, begun in 1971. Mm -hmm. And how does this come about? I mean, how, how did you find this mountainside, this mesa side? Why did you work there? How did, how did it happen? I was given, there must have been galleys. There's anyway, some very early information on Peter Tompkins' work on the Great Pyramids, which he published as the secret of the Great Pyramids, I think it was called, a book. But somehow I got the mathematics a couple of years before the book was published, and I started to draw it out. And I was interested in how you would assign spectrum colors to the different layers of construction in the prism, because there was some evidence that there was interest in that back in the days that those were being built. And so I started drawing it, and I realized that there was a uh, Earth's axis alignment. There was a celestial pole alignment in the uh, in the king's in the staircase up to the king's chamber in the pyramid. So I started drawing that, and that very rapidly got me involved in. I was already involved in solar astronomy. That got me involved in the precessional geometry in the sky. How how the pole star moves over a twenty six thousand year period. I was drawing this out, and I realized very quickly that our North Star Polaris turns in the human visual field over 26,000 years. And I thought that was just stunning piece of information. The smallest circle Polaris turns in, because what's happening is the axis of the Earth is moving to point to different regions of sky. And right now it's pointing very close to Polaris. And so Polaris is turning in the size of a circle smaller than a dime held at arm's length which is the smallest stuff you normally pay attention to, pebbles and spiders and bugs and, you know. And that's what it's doing now. 13,000 years from now, as the axis of the Earth points as far away from Polaris as it gets, Polaris turns in a circle that encompasses your entire field of vision. And when I discovered that, I thought, not enough to know about it, I want to walk through it. And that was the inspiration for Star Axis. That's how it got started. I need to build this so I can actually feel it, you know, see how it feels. So, and if I'm lucky, I will be able to finish it while I'm still able to walk up the stairs. That was the goal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 10-story high staircase with no landings. <laughs> I have about a thousand questions. So <laughs> first of all, these drawings, do they indicate that 26,000-year Movement? What are they, uh, the what one are they on the left. Us? The one on the left is showing the different circles you see when you walk up the star tunnel from the smallest one at the bottom up to the the biggest one, which you see from the very top stair. And the stairs are going to be dated in the star tunnel, so you know as you walk up that the aperture you're looking at, Polaris will rotate in that circle, the circle the aperture is defining in the sky, for the date that's on the stair. And the first stair is dated. A 2100, which is another odd thing, that, that the axis of the Earth makes the most perfect alignment with our North Star in an, in an even century year, 2100. When you get to the top, the stair dates are 11,000 BC and 15,000 AD, which is when Polaris will turn in, in that app. So you're, in the circle, so that you're describing the experience of looking through the oculus, the round looking through the oculus hole at the, at the top, top of the observatory. Right from the bottom, yes. and you're walking up the side of the mountain. And the oculus is framing larger and larger circles of sky, just like a window 
gives you a bigger view as you walk toward it. And every one of those circles represents an orbit of Polaris in the 26,000 year cycle. And, and the stairs have just been dated by the astronomy department at the University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, it was a great adventure. Two years ago, Woody Sullivan called me, who was pro professor emeritus there, and who took on the job of dating the stairs, called me to say, we have the dates for you. He called me the next day and said, uh-oh, <laughs> there's a problem. The Naval Observatory just called me and said, we've got a problem. Meaning they had just discovered that the sloshing of the molten core of the Earth is predictable at about 5,000 years, but not beyond that, it becomes quite random. And so, and we're accounting for all this in the dating of the stairs, and so the top stair is now dated plus or minus 500 years, because that's as close <laughs> as they can get as a safe thing. But I thought that was just wonderful. Woody was putting it in the mailbox, he said, when he gets his call, saying, you've got a problem. <laughs> and they started redating to accommodate this new information from the Naval Observatory. So this relationship between us and the stars is still evolving in terms of understanding. Naval Observatory, incidentally, keeps track of all of this uh, because it's used for backup navigational systems in case you know, in case the electronics and all that, they, in missiles and things, they have an optical tracker, which actually tracks off the stars. And so the Naval Observatory is measuring the exact location of Polaris for every minute of the day, every day of the year. And that's all programmed in the computer, in the, in the missile system. How did you find this site? Why this site? How did, it, how did you fund it? How did, I mean, you, you, <laughs> Another fun story. Well, but I think it's important for us to understand how, yeah. how a, a major work like this, that's not a, yet a public work, right. how you've done this yourself. It's quite extraordinary. Well, I started looking, for, as soon as I conceived this in 71, I started looking for land in 72. And Michael Heiser loaned me his pilot. Michael had a friend who was a pit boss and a one of the casinos in Nevada who liked to fly earth artists around. I think he took Smithson around and looking for sites. And he offered to take me up, Robert Dero, his name was. And uh, I learned a lot about what a pit boss did in casinos in the interim. But um, I'm sorry, I don't know what a pit boss is. He's the guy who looks over the casino and picks out who's counting cards and who's doing what. And it was so much fun to walk through the casino with him because we'd walk through and he'd say, see the guy in the yellow tie over there? He's counting cards. You see that guy over there? He's got a walkie-talkie in his pocket. He's signaling numbers to a guy out who has a computer out in the thing. And he'd be saying, security, get the guy in the iron, yellow tie. Get the guy in the... <laughs> As we were walking along. That's what a pit boss does. Good to know. <laughs> anyway, um, it was an amazing experience also, knowing these people. But he's also a pilot. He's also a pilot, and he, and he, and and he liked to take arthritis up. Yeah. So he took me up, and I went up once, and I said, thank you very much, Bob, but I can't figure this out from the air. I need to know what the land feels like. I realized right away I had to, there was something I needed to know about the feeling of the land, and I didn't know what it was. So I started driving around every summer for three or four months. 
And uh, I had a, what was it, a Corv the unsafe at any speed car that Ralph Nader attacked, which was a wonderful car to drive around the desert in. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and it took me four years. And I had two uh, kind of base camps. One was in Utah in Salt Lake City. And the other one was in Las Vegas, New Mexico. A friend of mine was head of the art department there, where I would kind of go to shower and rest up, and then I'd take off and drive for a few weeks. And I kept coming back to these mesas. And I had no idea how I was going to capture any land. In the inter interim, I had found a mesa at the southern part of Salt Lake City near St. George. And I was about to sign a contract to buy the mesa when a rancher said, oh, I got to show you something really neat about that mesa. And he took me out at night, and there was a spot at the bottom of the mesa that glowed in the dark from hydrogen bomb fallout. <laughs> and he said, isn't that cool? And I thought, I'm out of here. I mean, <laughs> so I canceled that deal. And, uh, and then I was driving around in these mesas, and I was up on top of a set of mesas that are next to this one. And a cowboy came up over the side, and he was the Marlboro Man, this perfectly handsome guy, totally outfitted in a perfect quarter horse, just amazing. And where we were, you could see for 40 miles in all directions. There wasn't even a building in sight. There was one little two-lane blacktop highway. And he was curious as to how I got up there. And I had driven down a back road in this unsafe at any speed car. and. Uh, the big issue was don't park over grass because mufflers start grass fires, and grass fires are a real thing in the West. They're, the wind blows, and they're, they essentially have to burn out. They destroy millions of acres of land. So he was happy to see I knew this because I'd parked over a rock with my car. And we started chatting, and I told him about the project. <clears throat> and he said, oh, that's the sort of thing my dad would be interested in, and whipped out a business card and handed it to me. Why don't you give him a call? Now, this is like 1975. You know, cowboy, Marlboro man, not a building in sight for 40 miles. It was a stunning experience. So I went to town the next day and fed quarters in the payphone, and I called up W.O. Culbertson, who was the guy who owned the ranch, and he turned out to be an amazing man. He had helped Lyndon Johnson start the Bracero program of farm workers being traded back and forth with Mexico. And he helped start the Cowboy Hall of Fame. And he was involved in a whole lot of other things. And I called him up. And he said, yeah, my son told me about that. Sounds real interesting. Can you describe it in three minutes or less? I'm going to a banking meeting. And the pilot has the plane revved up outside. And I said, sure. So I gave him a really short pitch. And he said, that sounds like just the sort of thing we need around here. How much land do you need? And I said, I need about a square mile. And he said, well, hell, we got plenty of those. Drive around the ranch and pick one out. I'll never forget this conversation. And I said, don't you want to meet me first? And he said, I don't have to. I love the idea. Come and see me when you pick the spot. So I wandered around the ranch for three or four months getting surveys and things like that before we actually got together. And we drove around in his Jeep and looked at all the sites and wound up with this one. And this site was fortuitous because 
It's as far away from the concrete batch plant in Las Vegas, New Mexico, as a concrete truck can drive. When they arrive at the site, the concrete's starting to set up in the truck. We put more water in it and we have to pour it right away. So if it had been further away, I would have had to build my own concrete pouring system to, mm. to make this, mm. which would have been an expense that probably would have set us back years. So, so why did you choose this mesa? Of all the mesas on, on uh, Mr. Culbertson's ranch. I kept coming back to this one. This one sits all by itself, separated from the others. And when you stand on it, Oh, and, and when I stood on this mesa, I thought, okay, I know why I had to drive around. I'm standing at the boundary between the earth and the sky, which was the, is the feeling there. My feet are planted on the earth. The horizon is cutting through my midsection, and my head is in the space of the stars. That's kind of how you feel. You just feel like you're at that boundary between heaven and earth. And, uh, you mean at the top of the mesa? At the top of the yeah. mesa, when you stand on that mesa. And yeah. so you were able to get the site. And I was able to get the site, and, yeah, and he, uh, he uh, gave me the land. He wanted to give me the land, and I said I, had to, I, I needed to give him something back. So I gave him a small prism, and I said, it's not enough. You know, it's not fair to exchange. And he said... Well, you know what? We're always getting the Cadillac stuck in that ravine down there. Build me a bridge, a little bridge. It cost like, I don't know, $800 to build or something like that. We built a little plank bridge, about 16 foot long planks that go over this arroyo where the mud was really undealable with. And that was it. And then he deeded the land over to me. And I'm glad I built that bridge because it's necessary for us to get in and out. <laughs> yeah, I've driven on that perilous. Driven, yes, yes I, I went off the road. I had quite an experience. But I'm curious, did you do the drawings of the stairs in advance, or once you found the site, then the form of Star Axis came into being? Initially, it was going to be a set of stairs on the outside of the mesa. And one of the considerations was that the mesa have a southern slope that was pretty close to the latitude location, which is the angle of of the axis of the earth from the from level is the same as your location. So if you're at 44 degrees latitude, the angle of the axis of the earth will be a 44 degree angle off of level to sight the North Star. This is about as far north as you can build a staircase that you can actually walk up. If you were on the if you were on the equator, the, the tunnel would lay flat on the ground, and of course you wouldn't be able to see the North Star because it would be in the, in the horizon light. And if you were, you were at the North Pole, the staircase would be straight up. So it would be a ladder. This is 35 and a quarter degrees, and it's, uh, it's a steep but doable staircase. That so was my experience. That was, a, that was an important factor, too. In this. Steep but doable, exactly. Yeah, steep but Perfectly doable. Perfectly put. And let's see. What is it, 147 stairs, I think? Yeah. yeah. Eight and a half inch risers, so they're steep. So this beautiful photo, it's kind of a slow action yeah. camera. This is a, yeah, this is a time-lapse photograph. The bright star in the very center is Polaris, and that'll be turning in that dime-sized circle. 
but the view inside the tunnel, actually a view from each stair frames one of these star trails. These are made by all different stars in the sky, but actually Polaris will turn in every one of the circles you see in this photograph, with the biggest one being the one that encompasses your field of vision that you see from the very top stair. It's, uh, it's a lot of information when you talk about it, trying to discuss you know, precession and the mathematics, but the truth of the matter is it's a very visceral experience at star axis, and you don't really need to know any of this stuff because you're actually walking through it. And when you're in the star tunnel, the axis of the Earth, that angle, the celestial pole is palpable. You can, you can really feel it. And you also, you discover you have some kind of primeval relationship to it, that you know this alignment between Earth and sky is programmed into our genetics or something like that. Anyway, all of that wakes up at star axis when you're experiencing this piece. When I started this, of course, that was just an idea. And there was no way to know if, you, if it was really going to work out until it was built. But I'm happy to report it's actually more than I expected. The experience is stronger and, and less mental and more visceral. One last question before we open it up to sure. the floor. Where are we at the construction? I know it's, we've been, it's been 47 years of work. And yeah. I know you've been adding granite onto the steps, and you, I think you did some facing. Well, the first entrance yeah. way, we will finish this this summer. And we will finish uh, one of those chambers with a triangle. You was shown as a view from inside the pyramid. It's called the hour chamber, and it lets you view one hour of rotation of the Earth. And we'll finish the stairway into that. Mm. And after that, uh, the finishing gets much smaller doing capstones and mm. you know, different, mm. different smaller pieces of the work. We expect to be finished and open by 2022. Very good. Yeah. And this year is the big one. If we can push over this, this rock wall that you see in the foreground, this photograph is at the back. It's 80 feet high, and, and the length of it is 100-some feet long. And the only thing we have to finish on this is the little unfinished part up there on the right, plus plus capping it with capstone. Well, wow. and just getting the, the work people out there uh, into the desert to do all yeah. this work every day. It's a great local crew. They're from Santa Rosa, which is a town, the population about 3,000 people. And uh, it's about a 45 minute drive. Mm. And they're really dedicated. I've only had two foremen since the beginning of the project. Mm. And the foreman now is the son-in-law of the first one. <laughs> who's grown too old to work there. <laughs> I think that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 